Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, what do otters do when they want advice? They go to seek kelp. Where do ghosts go to sail? The Dead Sea. We know that corals are vitally important, a jeweled belt of our planet that provides a life force for the entire ocean. But corals aren't the only force of nature that echoes beneath the waves. Today we're chatting with Aurora Ricard, a seagrass biologist studying the effects of this often overlooked part of our oceanic ecosystem. Starting off with corals, Aurora made a full-hearted leap into seagrasses during grad school and hasn't looked back. Today we chat about her amazing coral research in Mexico, how seagrasses combat climate change, and how you play a role in this underwater nursery. Please enjoy. Aurora, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am really excited to chat with you today. Thanks for inviting me. I'm very excited too. So you are originally from Spain. Could you tell me a little bit what's it like growing up in Spain and how do you become a marine biologist growing up in Spain? Okay, so I would say you grow up as in many other places uh, in the world. Not sure how to answer that one. But yeah, uh, the thing in Spain is that the ocean is everywhere. Spain is a peninsula. It's um, it's called the Iberic Peninsula. And accessibility to the ocean is very easy. And it's a small country, meaning you can be in the ocean in five hours, the most, <laughs> driving. It's uh, Of course, you won't do it in a day, but uh, it's... Um, surrounded by water <laughs> and so probably one of the reasons I became a marine biologist is because I grew up in a city which is in the coast it's called uh, Valencia and the Mediterranean area yeah there are other reasons why I became a marine biologist that yeah I grew up close to the ocean so that's one that helped inspire it so you spent a lot of time out on the water what was what were the beaches like where you live were they rocky were there tidal pools or was it more like a sandy beach so it's mostly sandy where I grew up, which is not as exciting as a rocky shore. <laughs> but it's also very warm in summer and it's uh, not uh, as windy as other places. And it's a nice spot to be enjoying free time, let's say, especially in spring, summer and fall. Did you grow up spending a lot of time in the ocean then? So actually, no. I mean, I visited the coast and the beach many, many times. Most of the times I was just like swimming a little bit and then spending most of the time on the sand because when I was a kid, I was kind of afraid of the water and the ocean. And 
Yeah, I think I, one of the reasons I end up being a marine biologist is because of that fear mixed with curiosity of what can be under the ocean surface. <laughs> so I think, yeah, that's one of the things that engaged me when I was an adult. Like, I want to know what's there underneath that um, blue <laughs> color and it's interesting because most of my colleagues now my professional colleagues are people that has spent a lot of time in the water when they were kids right. maybe because the family was um, bringing them out or they had a boat or they were very into snorkel and diving when they were kids or teenagers and that wasn't my case I, I grew up very close to shore but was not going into the water that much because of that fear but then that fear became curiosity and that curiosity became my professional career so here I am studying the ocean that is fascinating <laughs> I love this so much most people are like I wanted to be a marine biologist because I love the ocean so much. And you're like, yes, I really liked it, but I was also terrified of it and it intrigued me. <laughs> so I, that's why I study it. <laughs> you know, this feeling that a lot of people has that the water is not our environment and most of the people doesn't feel comfortable right. being in the water, especially when you can't touch the bottom anymore or where you right. when you can't see the bottom anymore because the transparency of the water at some point ends and you are on this blue open ocean and many many times that's super scary and it was for me now it's not that scary it was the case when i was a kid and a teenager and until my 20s i think that's when it started to change mm -hmm. and yeah since then until now yeah, that you're right. It's a totally real fear that many people have, especially if you don't grow up going, you know, being exposed to the water that much, then it's, I mean, it's rational, right? It's not, it's not a natural environment <laughs> for some. <laughs> so, so you knew going into university that you wanted to be a marine biologist? Kind of. I knew I wanted to study biology and I was interested in the ocean too. I, at that point, I still didn't know that I wanted to be a marine biologist, but uh, I knew I wanted to do conservation, some kind of work in conservation of natural systems. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I end up focusing on marine biology and I think I made a great decision. Yeah. What prompted you to focus on marine biology? This curiosity that we were talking about before, what I study, it's in, in Spain and you don't have marine biology major, it's biology. So you study general biology and then you specialize through master's degrees or PhD. And so I did general biology, studying all sorts of environments, terrestrial and marine. And yeah, at some point I started to choose more marine options like this, I think. I'm liking it. I want to know more. I want to study this more. And then I had a big game changer. I did a, an exchange program at some point when I was an undergrad. And I went for a year to study abroad. And I went to Mexico mm -hmm. to study in one of the universities in Mexico, the University of Guadalajara. And there I started to collaborate with a research group that was studying marine ecology in coral reefs. And so that for me was a, a big change because I started 
volunteering with them and they engaged me a lot in research projects which which was new to me i was still an undergrad and everything i did before was in classes but not in formal research projects and i started diving with them too and that was a big realization in my life like okay this can be a professional path for me and i really really like it and what do i need to do to arrive here in the future and so that's when i made the decision like okay i'm gonna finish my major and then i'm gonna pursue a PhD, and i'm still here <laughs> so yeah okay that's really interesting you have an incredible amount of publications and i was looking through some of them is this when you're in mexico did you study coral reef fish at the clipper atoll that's one of the studies yes okay. exactly could you explain a little bit about what that entailed like studying these fish what did the field work look like a little bit? Ooh, so field work in coral reefs in atolls <laughs> is very exciting. <laughs> One, because most of these places are isolated or are remote. So you have to take a boat or another sort of transport, but usually you stay there for weeks to be able to do the study. Mm. It's not that you go dive and then you go back home. So it's kind of a sampling trip or campaign where everything is very intense because it has to be done in that window, window of time and everybody, the entire team is working super hard to make it possible. And it's a team effort. It's really fun, but also exhausting. And to be in an atoll um, with corals or coral reefs, it's super. It is super exciting. I mean, it's there is plenty of colors. The transparency of the water usually is very high, meaning you have a lot of visibility underwater because of these places are remote. There is a lot of fish in general, so there is a lot of life and biodiversity, and it is very nice and exciting to be diving there and having have the opportunity to to visit these places which are not accessible for everybody. That's a summary. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned they're really far. So you one of these papers was at the Clipperton Atoll. About how far was that from like mainland? Yeah, that one is more than 1,000 kilometers from mainland. That's a haul. That take you a couple of days to get out there? Well, more in a, in, a, in a boat, in a big cruise, even more. Then, because that, that's one of the studies I did in Mexico, but we also I also collaborated with other studies. Other island where we were doing research, it's not an atoll, but it's an island, it's called Isla Isabel, which is on the Pacific too. And that one, for instance, took us like six hours in a boat, but a very tiny, tiny boat, mm -hmm. <laughs> very small boat. And then we did that uh, several times. And every time we did this, we were in the island for two weeks, more or less, mm. doing all this super intense work. And you have to bring everything with you. Everything means where you sleep, where you cook, all the food, all the water and, and everything. Most of these places don't even have any electricity or housing or anything. It's just remote places in the world. And it is yeah. very exciting. I think it's, uh, these are one of the best field experiences I ever had because of this intensity in very isolated places. Yeah. 
So, okay, so you're getting transported, like, hundreds of miles into the ocean with (laughs) all of your stuff. So you have enough food and water and not to mention all the massive amounts of field gear. Yeah, exactly. All the tanks for diving. So I'm assuming you're, like, you're up at dawn, you're going out to these reef sites, and you're monitoring fish at the reef sites. Is that what the primary study was? Yeah, exactly. Okay. You do census of fishes, and of course, for that, you need to know what species you are going to find there and also have a good sense of calculating the size of the fish by eye. <laughs> Which, yeah. um, now now you can use other uh, techniques and cameras and everything, but when we did that study, that was not the case. <laughs> so, yeah, I had a lot of training in uh, swimming pools before to be able to calculate the size of the fishes. Right. Yeah, because underwater, everything's magnified. Exactly. Is there a set magnification? I've always heard it's like four times, but now I'm second guessing that. I think it's between three and four times. Three something something. Okay. (laughs) So yeah, it would take a little bit of a special training to be like, well, in my eye, in my mind's eye, I think it was like 10 inches, but really exactly. it wasn't. But really it's less than that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's that's how it works. <laughs> Very cool. So you went to Mexico, you did this amazing study abroad program and we're hooked. Hook, line and sinker. I want to do marine stuff. Yes, exactly. That was it. And I still had two more years at the university at that point. And you had two years left for your master's or your undergrad? Undergrad. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I finished (laughs) and I went straight to a master's degree because in Europe is uh, mandatory. You have to do the master's degree if you want to pursue a PhD. Here in the United States, it's a little bit different, but there there you have to do the master's. And so I went straight to the master's and that's when I moved to Barcelona, which Mm -hmm. is another city in Spain where there are more research institutions and universities doing marine stuff and it was movement for me a big movement okay i'm gonna leave my city but i'm gonna go to this other area with more marine research happening and then i stayed there for the phd too Mm -hmm. and that's when i became a seagrass ecologist (laughs) yeah and i'm so curious about this i think seagrasses are amazing And like we chatted a little bit about before we started recording, they're like highly underrated. How did you get into seagrasses? Yeah, (laughs) great point, because I started in Mexico with coral reefs. Right. Good point. Um, So one of the things I really, really knew when I started my master's was that I wanted to do ecosystem ecology, meaning the ecosystem scale. You can, there are different levels of organization of nature from the species to the population, to the ecosystem, to the landscape, and so on. There are not many more, but uh, I knew I wanted to do um, research at the ecosystem level. That's what I was doing in Mexico with coral reefs, because coral reefs are, corals are habitat forming species. And so they create this nice ecosystem where other species and organisms look for shelter and food. So in the Mediterranean, the thing is that there are not coral reefs. There are some species of corals, but they are not abundant enough to to create habitat. Mm -hmm. And so the main habitat forming species in the Mediterranean is seagrass. 
And so that's how I, I focused on seagrasses because I had to do the research there. And so I decided, okay, I mean, of course here, coral reefs is not an option. So what, what else do we have? And it's also very exciting to do work on seagrasses. But at the beginning, I was more interested on the ecosystem perspective than the habitat itself. Okay, so you were like, I want to do corals, but I need to stay in the Mediterranean. And there's no coral reef habitats. There's some corals, but not any real reef structures in the Mediterranean. So what what kind of ecosystems actually are here? And that's where you've discovered seagrasses. Yeah, I mean, I knew the seagrasses before, but yes, if we think about it, there are five main coastal habitats. So coral reefs and seagrasses are two of them. Then we have mangroves, kelp forests, and salt marshes. I knew I wanted to study one of those. (laughs) And in Mexico, I was studying coral reefs, but then, yeah, in the Mediterranean, that was not an option. So I decided, okay, let's go for seagrasses. The good thing with ecosystem ecology is that you can study seagrasses, but most of the processes that you will see at this ecosystem level also happen in coral reefs. Mm. So you can study one and you will know things about the other too. So it's not that you are making a decision of, okay, I'm not going to study coral reefs anymore. It's just you are using a different system. Yeah, that makes total sense. It's studying the whole the whole enchilada, right? How all the bits and pieces work together and how they kind of support each other. And that makes sense. It would be transferable between, like you mentioned, coral reefs, mangroves, seagrasses, salt marshes. I like it. Exactly. That's pretty incredible. What does seagrass research look like? Do you still get to go out and play on the boat? Are you wading around in seagrasses? Yeah, there are many options, actually. And <laughs> I want, I want before, before we start with that, I want to mention that seagrasses are amazing. I mean, of course, if you start with coral reefs and everything is colorful and right. then you go to seagrasses, everything is green and it can seem more boring or less exciting. But then when you start to know the details of the system and what it does is just incredible. And yeah, I want to mention that because it looks like, no, I couldn't do coral reefs, so then I'm doing secrets, but it's not like that. It's, it's, right. It happened. I was there uh, in, an, in this area, and right now I can choose what I do <laughs> and what system I'm studying, and I, I keep studying secrets, so they are yeah. super incredible and amazing. They really are. Actually, a question I had for you, how many types of seagrass are there? So there are approximately 70 species, 70. 70, okay. Yeah, more or less 70, which is a very, very small number if we think about the spatial distribution they have. I mean, seagrasses are present all over the place in every single coastal area around the world, except for the poles, because there is very cold. But everywhere else, you will find seagrasses if there are sandy habitats and the conditions are good. Really? I didn't realize that. Yeah, and this doesn't happen for coral reefs, which are only in the tropics, or kelp forests, which are only in temperate areas. So the good thing with seagrasses, with these five big groups that I'm talking about all the time, seagrasses are the only one group that is found everywhere. And that makes it very, very interesting for research and especially climate change mitigation research because you can find seagrasses everywhere. And then you think, on okay, how many types of seagrasses do we have? And 
there are different ways to classify them. But if mm -hmm. we go to the species level, the number of species is just super low if we compare with uh, terrestrial plants, for instance, where we have several hundred thousands of species. Right. That is very, very interesting. Yes, that's fascinating. 70 worldwide with the range of everywhere except for the poles seems like quite a low number. <laughs> it's a very low number. Yeah. And seagrasses are plants, not algae. So mm -hmm. they are like terrestrial plants. Uh, they are called angiosperms. They're flowering plants. Yeah, they're flowering <laughs> plants. Exactly. So highly evolved plants that actually have adapted to be living underwater. If we compare the same group in land and in the ocean, the group in land is just super diverse, many species, and then in the ocean, it's only 70. That's wild to think about. Huh. Does each, I mean, I'm sure temperature affects it quite significantly, but does salinity play a role in like where they're distributed? Yep, there are many different environmental factors, but yes, temperature is one, salinity is another. They are adapted to salinity, like high salinity, like in the ocean, mm -hmm. but uh, with freshwater inputs or riverine inputs or heavy rain, they can die. Yeah, it's, uh, it's negative for them. So they can handle some freshwater inputs. Depends on the species, but yeah, they can resist some changes, but if the change is so high, then it's not good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about, I mean, your research is fascinating to me. How I discovered you was your paper on carbon sequestration in seagrass beds. So how did you come up with this question and what did researching it kind of look like? Okay, so seagrasses as all other species of plants are photosynthesizers. They do photosynthesis, meaning they capture or they sequester carbon dioxide mm -hmm. and then release oxygen. That's what photosynthesis does with every single plant or algae in the world. And in the research community, there have been discussions on how much carbon seagrasses can sequester and if that can have effects on the water chemistry in particular. And I'm talking about ocean acidification, which uh, if I have to um, describe it very quick, it's like we are, we have released a lot of um, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and a lot of carbon dioxide in, since the industrial revolution. And so part of this carbon dioxide enters the water, the ocean. And there, there is like a chemical reaction where pH or acidity increases. So pH decrease and acidity increases. So the water, the ocean is becoming more acid. Mm -hmm. And so seagrasses, by doing photosynthesis underwater and sequestering this carbon dioxide, can reverse this negative effect of climate change. Mm -hmm. And that is what we uh, have studied. And what we have done with this study is to, to check or confirm several hypotheses that have been made before by the scientific community. So the discussion was there probably in the last five years there has been this discussion like, okay, this can work. This can be a potential natural based solution for climate change effects, but we still didn't have the data or the evidence to, to say it. And this study that came out 
this year is actually saying that. It's like, okay, seagrasses by sequestering carbon dioxide can reverse the effects of ocean acidification to pre-industrial levels, meaning what we had pH levels that we had before the industrial revolution. Okay, so seagrasses can reverse increased pHs to pre-industrial revolution levels. That is amazing to think about. So how did you measure that? With sensors, <laughs> yeah. We were using sensors that measure pH. It's a very difficult thing to do. It's not simple. You can measure temperature in a very simple way, but then for pH, it's very tricky. And actually, the technology to measure pH underwater autonomously, not going with a boat every single time or not taking a water sample every single time, that yeah. technology is very new. And yeah. so we have been using that, these uh, sensors <laughs> deployed in different sites, in different seagrass meadows uh, to measure pH. And that's what came out this last year. So these sensors, are they just kind of on a pole in the middle of a seagrass field and they're just constantly collecting data? Exactly. Yeah. We have some of those here. Okay. That's really interesting. So did it like ping the data to, is it satellite? Is that how it communicates? Or do you have to go out? You have to go out. Okay. <laughs> I wish you you could not, <laughs> but no, you, you have to go out, which is always fun. I mean, right. I love going out in the field. And of course, that's not a big deal. We all probably enjoy doing that. So we go in a boat with every uh, all the stuff in it, all the sensors, all the diving gear and everything we need. And then we arrive to the place uh, and then we dive and we deploy the sensors in the seagrass meadow underwater and we have to uh, stick them like very strongly to resist currents wave action and essentially to don't lose the sensor because the only way to get the data is recovering it yeah yeah and <laughs> that that generates kind of <laughs> some anxiety sometimes it's like okay you deploy the thing and then it's going to be there for several weeks and it's hard to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, well. You put it in the seagrass bed and you're like, please be here. Please don't get swept away. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's how it goes. <laughs> Did you lose any sensors? No, we have not, uh, oh, but we have, amazing. yeah, that's amazing, <laughs> especially because the one we were using were actually very expensive and it, yeah, would have been a disaster, but no, but we, we put uh, buoys next okay. to the sensors to be able to find them. Yes. And especially this study was done in California where the visibility underwater is terrible and if you don't have a buoy or anything that is targeting the site, it's very difficult to, to find anything. So what we have lost is some buoys sometimes. And yeah, those days have been hard, but we end up finding the sensors every single time. So that's good. Yes, that's always nice when you can find your equipment. <laughs> okay, so you're, me you're measuring the pH in the system, but did you introduce more seagrass to an area and then measure the pH drop there? Or like, how, how did you come up with that the seagrasses are sequestering so much carbon? Okay, by comparison. So instead of using only one site or only one seagrass meadow, yeah. you use many. Right. 
And of course, we not only deploy sensors, we also take measurements on the seagrasses, like how long are the leaves and how much biomass do we have inside or how long is the area of the meadow. We, we also have all these measurements that we get from the field. And by comparison with uh, the, the rest of the sites, we can know which one is uh, sequestering more. And by comparison with areas with no vegetation at all, we can know how or how big is the effect of the seagrass because you are comparing with a sensor that is deployed in a place with uh, no vegetation at all around. So you can do this comparison. Okay. That's really interesting. And how far apart were your sites? So for that study, we have been studying seven, seven sites and... From the, I think the most far away were more than 1,000 kilometers. So it's, you know, California from north to south, essentially. Okay. Big area. <laughs> yeah, big area. <laughs> yeah. And it has been many, many years of driving up and down studying this. So, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. The longevity of this study also tells the story. Mm -hmm. So if you had just gone out for like a season or two, it would have, that wouldn't have told the whole story. About how long have these measurements been going on? For six years. Okay. Yeah, which essentially is what you have said is if you only measure one side in one season, there is always space for doubt and like, okay, what happens here? Is, is it happening in other places? Is it happening in other seasons? And especially with this type of questions, uh, it's tricky. And the good thing with that study is that we have generated a big data set and with all this temporal information and also the spatial information and the scale of the studies is actually very large. There is no place for findings that are anecdotal. That's the thing. It's like the data set is so big that what we find is very robust. Mm, that's so interesting. Okay. How did you get to California from Spain? Mm -hmm. Because of the seagrasses. <laughs> <laughs> I followed the seagrasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, again, that's the good thing of uh, what I study. It's like uh, I can actually go anywhere in the world and keep studying it because you'll find seagrass in coastal areas only. Right. So I finished the PhD in the University of Barcelona, and I also did my PhD in Australia. So I was going back and forth, Barcelona and Australia, and I kind of had my like expertise and network in, in Europe and Australia. And United States was like, okay, this far place that I've never been. <laughs> that I know is very interesting, especially California, has a lot of marine research, a lot. And when I finished the PhD, I started to think, okay, uh, where can I do a postdoc? Because uh, that's what you do next <laughs> if you want to keep doing research. So you, once you are a doctor, many people pursue a postdoc and then goes for a faculty job or research position, more permanent. But you will do this period of postdoc. And post California was a good place to go because of this high density of research institutions doing marine science. There is research centers doing marine stuff 
from Humboldt to San Diego. And some of them are internationally recognized places that everybody in the scientific community knows. And mm -hmm. that was very interesting. And there was a project uh, on seagrasses and carbon sequestration happening mm -hmm. at UC Davis, uh, University of California, Davis. And so I applied and I came to do a postdoc there. And I'm still here. <laughs> so yeah, that's how I did the, the big jump. It's like, okay, I decided not to stay in Spain or not to go to Australia where I already had been doing research. And I decided to go out of my comfort zone and expand my network and the places where I've, I've been doing research. And so, yeah, California was a good place to come because there was this secret, this secret research happening and also the potential for a lot of interaction and networking and exciting science happening. Yes. Very cool. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in California, including your seagrass work. Very interesting. So one of your other studies that caught my eye was seagrasses help oysters have a soft spot for oysters. So could you explain a little bit about that study? And where was that? Was that in California as well? Yeah, that one is in California. And it's the same idea of uh, carbon sequestration and pH uh, increase. But the thing, the thing with ocean acidification is that it, it affects organisms and especially calcifying organisms, those that have shells or external skeletons, such as crabs, oysters, mussels, lobsters, etc. Mm -hmm. And so with this study, I decided to work with oysters because it's one of the um, organisms that has big commercial activity or a big commercial industry behind. There is a lot of oyster aquaculture happening in many places, some of them in California and the West Coast of United States. So we decided to look at this ocean acidification amelioration by seagrasses, by using oysters, mm -hmm. meaning we knew from the field data that we had with the sensors and all that part of the study. We knew that seagrasses could influence pH levels and change water chemistry related with ocean acidification, but we still didn't have the evidence of how that would affect organisms that are affected in a negative way by ocean acidification. So we designed this experiment, putting seagrasses and oysters, oysters together to check if oysters grow more with seagrasses or not. And so what we find is that oysters do more calcification. They, they actually grow, the shells grow better in the presence of seagrass. Because they're able to pull the necessary carbon or calcium carbonate out of the water column. It's just easier for them to do it. Yeah, with higher pH. Yeah, so seagrasses elevate pH and through that can facilitate oysters calcification. Okay, that's really cool. So again, was it you measured oysters that were out not in uh, seagrass beds and then you had some oysters that were in seagrass beds? Mm -hmm. That study, we did it in the in the laboratory, so everything is done in Aquarius. Okay. But yes, we had some with uh, seagrass and oysters and some with no seagrass and just oysters to know yeah, what was the effect. Really cool. That's really fascinating stuff. And like you mentioned, you know, it's not just oysters, it's all shelled organisms. So like you said, lobsters, I know abalone mm -hmm. out there was kind of, was an issue. 
us. So anything that has a shell, it grow, usually they grow with their shell. Um, and so being able to pull that calcium carbonate out of the water column is very important and it's easier for them to do at the higher <laughs> pHs. Exactly. So I want to circle back to your seagrass study for one second. We talked about, you know, the longevity of you studying these seagrasses is, is important to kind of the, the effectiveness of the study. So do you still deploy your sensors? Or are you planning on still monitoring these sites? Mm-hmm. Great question there. Uh, so yes. So we finished that study, but uh, when what it happens when you do one study is that you try to answer one question and you end up answering that question, but now you have more questions to answer later. <laughs> so, uh, and that's what happened to us. And yeah, we are still interested on doing all this research, all this secret research. And yes, we are doing experiments and field studies and all, yeah, all this to, to try to understand well the mechanisms behind this interactions and in this amelioration. There's a lot to be done. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, I'm glad to hear you still have the sensors out because I think I think long-standing data sets are fascinating because you can yes. like throw out the anomaly years and then like really look at what's yeah. happening. It is very, very important to have long-term monitoring and long-term data and big data sets. Yeah, especially <laughs> with the current issue of climate change that is mm. happening super fast and it's going to happen even faster and having this not only our data of course i mean every single um study not only um, selecting for one window of time but longer that's essential i think mm-hmm. it's, it's very critical for what for what's next yeah so you mentioned you know seagrasses are really cool because you found worldwide and they can live in all sorts of different climates and stuff what is one of your favorite things about seagrass like is there a is there like a particular seagrass that you really like that's just like does something fascinating or is there like a an animal that like lives in there that always captivates your attention when you're out in the field is there like is there one specific thing about seagrasses that just keeps bringing you back or a favorite thing i think there the point with seagrasses is the potential they have to help us as a human society. Mm. Um, it's incredible. It's not just that they sequester carbon dioxide and then they can uh, help ameliorating climate change. It's, I mean, they have many other things, functions, ecosystem functions and services. And so they are great spots for biodiversity and a lot of fishes that go to the seagrasses. And so seagrasses are essential for fisheries and communities that are depending on fish for food or for their economical activity. So that's one. And then another thing is that seagrasses uh, protect the shoreline from sea level rise and the action of hurricanes and big storms. And they're just incredible on what all the things they do (laughs) and how they benefit us. It's just amazing. Yeah, they do provide a lot of ecosystem services. When I think of seagrass, like in Florida, keep bringing up Florida, but that's, that's my, my paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, we have two seagrasses that are named after animals and just their common names and it's manatee grass and turtle grass. And it's because these animals eat the seagrasses mm-hmm. in quantities, right? Like I always see oysters living off them. There's all sorts of 
epiphytes, like little critters hanging out there. We see all kinds of fish, lobsters. I mean, the seagrass beds are like truly amazing to to look through. I like snorkeling them. Like we'll go down to the Keys. They have amazing seagrass beds down there. And we'll just float around and snorkel in the seagrass beds. There's always something cool. Kind of like a little nursery for the fish as they get bigger and then eventually they go offshore. Exactly. That makes them super important for economical activities, especially fisheries, but also tourism. You can think about it like manatees in Florida. If I visit Florida, I want to go and see the manatees or the turtles. And yeah, there are numbers on that that I don't have right now, but there are estimates of how much seagrasses support economies and the percentage of the economy, total economy on a particular area. And it's just incredible. You you won't think about it, but it's... Amazing <laughs> what they do. Well, another cool thing about seagrasses is they don't just sequester carbon in their leaves. They sequester into the ground. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. So the cool thing with seagrasses is that they can ameliorate climate change effects into different ways. And both are related with their physiology, but one is uh, what we have been talking about, ocean acidification, amelioration, which usually happens through photosynthesis and so through the leaves. But the other way um, seagrasses can ameliorate climate change effects is by sequestering carbon as organic carbon in their sediments. So bury it underneath the seagrass metal. And so seagrasses trap carbon through photosynthesis, as we already have said, but they also can trap a particulate organic matter that is uh, suspended on the water column. Mm. And because of their leaves and shape, they act like a filter. They keep trapping and trapping organic matter, particulate organic matter, and bringing it to the sediments. And that's how they bury carbon, organic carbon, and these uh, organic matter stays there, most of them, without decomposing. And that's how they become big carbon sinks. Okay, so let me see if I have this straight. So we talked about seagrasses, they have they do photosynthesis and that helps alleviate carbon in the water column. But they also, their, their leaves kind of act as giant filters and kind of constantly waving through and trapping organic matter that otherwise would be floating in the water column, decomposing and adding to the the acidification issue. So exactly. Okay, so these leaves trap it and they bring it down and they can bring, kind of bring it down into their root systems and prevent it from decaying or just the decay doesn't get into the water column. No, it's just the decay becomes more uh, slow, yeah, much more. And actually, in some cases, we are talking about organic matter that can accumulate underneath the seagrass meadow for hundreds of years uh, without decaying. But in some extreme cases, it can be there for thousands of years. And that's the case for some species um, in the Mediterranean and Australia. And that's actually what I studied during my PhD, like how long that carbon can be stored there without being decomposed, without decaying. And so how much storage of carbon can seagrass meadows provide? And this is... Uh, the amazing thing with these carbon sinks is they keep capturing 
carbon and mitigating the carbon dioxide atmospheric concentration increase because they keep trapping it. That is so amazing. Nature just boggles my mind. Like, there's just a natural balance for everything. Oh, there's lots of organic matter in the water column that would cause an issue, while the seagrasses can pull it out and bury it and it will make it a non-issue. Yeah. That's incredible. I'm a big fan of natural-based solutions for climate change in particular, because we have the solution. It's just we don't know or we have not yet managed the natural system well to do what we want. So I think we have the solution in front of our eyes. Not that seagrasses are the only one, but it's part of it. And yeah, by protecting them and restoring them in the places where they have disappeared, Mm -hmm. we, we can do a lot. And that should become a priority for managers and politicians in particular. Yeah. What does seagrass restoration look like? Like gardening, actually. (laughs) It's the same thing as uh, forest restoration, but underwater. So you can put seeds uh, or you can transplant from other places where you already have some seagrass. And it's like gardening, but underwater. And of course, that's not a possibility everywhere. I mean, it's not that we can plant seagrass all over the place. We need to choose wisely the, the sites because they are fragile and will be affected by different issues such as warming or pollution. But especially where seagrasses have disappeared and there are many sites around the world where seagrasses have disappeared in the last decades. Mm-hmm. If the stressor is not there anymore, seagrasses can be restored and that's actually happening in some places. But yeah, I would say we have to do more of that. Yeah, that's really cool. I like the concept of seagrass restoration. Is there a way, is there a method that's more effective? You mentioned seeds or like, like grass plugs. Is there a method that's more effective? It depends on the species, okay. essentially. Yeah, for some species, seeds are... Well, seeds, it's going to be always the cheapest and more effective one because you only put the seeds and then you kind of uh, wait until they grow. But for some species, that's not going to work. And so you use other techniques. Cool. Very cool. I like that. Yeah. What are some threats for seagrasses? And they do all these amazing things. They seem pretty hardy, right? They're able to sequester this carbon. They can live in different salinities and different pHs. So what are some things that can kind of knock them back? Yeah, warming is one of them. So global warming, it's a big deal (laughs) with them because we know not all seagrasses will resist higher temperatures. And then human activities, especially physical disturbances. Mm. such as dredging and construction in coastal areas and all sort of human activities that destroy seagrass habitat itself. That affects them a lot. And, of course, other climate change effects, such as ocean acidification, we still don't know how is it going to affect seagrasses in the long term. That's a big, big gap in knowledge that we have. I would say warming its one the big one probably, then sea level rise, it's also going to affect them because 
seagrasses depend on light to live as all other plants and if water levels increase some of the deep seagrasses won't won't make it mm. yeah that all makes sense yeah there are many different factors that can affect them so one of my new favorite questions to ask on the show mm-hmm. is if you had an unlimited amount of money for a project what would you do Okay, <laughs> so so I will probably uh, do research on the same area where I am now, but the scale of the studies, I will try to make it bigger, okay. global if possible. And with <laughs> if I had that option, I would design global studies, not just focused on one region or one country, but global to have this like big data sets to really understand what's going to happen at the global level and also well that's important but also there are big spatial gaps on research like we know there has been more research in western countries than other places and so i would definitely try to implement studies in collaboration with areas where we still there's still a big lack on research data, trying to decentralize research. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great to to be able to really get a good snapshot of the worldwide and not just the countries that already are doing research. Exactly. I like it. It's a great, great use of the money. My personal favorite question to ask is, what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be a really amazing day out in the field, or it can be the day where things happened and it makes a really great story now. Okay. I would say there are many <laughs> stories, <laughs> but if I, have, if, I have, if I have to choose stories from the field, I, if I have to choose, it's going to be one of my first scientific divings, which was mm-hmm. in Mexico, going back to coral reefs, and I was doing a fish census. I remember we were uh, on a team of five people on the boat and all of us were diving together, like meaning everybody goes down and then we put a transect, which is like a straight line that everybody follows. And then we go one by one, every a single one measuring different things. And so I was uh, measuring, I think it was invertebrates at that point. And so I was following another colleague that was like uh, 20 meters in front of me. And at some point, that person, I don't know how deep we were, but probably 20 meters or something like that. And at some point, my colleague just turned around, came to me. And when we dive, we can't we can't talk. We need to write or we need to use signs with our hands. And so he wrote on the, um, on the table he had, can you hear? And I was looking at him like, what? <laughs> what, what, what? And so he asked me to take out the hood that I was using and I did that I did that and it was amazing because we could hear whales singing oh. and the sound underwater travels very fast and it surrounds you at the point that you don't know where the sound is coming from and it's just an amazing experience uh, to have especially if there are whales singing and I remember that as one of my not the first but uh, among the first scientific divings I was doing and it was just one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had that's incredible you're diving on a coral reef surrounded by whale songs 
Mm -hmm. And we couldn't see the whales. I mean, who knows how far were they, especially because the sound just goes super fast and super far. Right. But yeah, it was amazing. It was like, okay. <laughs> and, I, and now I don't know if I'm going to be able to sample more. <laughs> but nice. it was it was very exciting. Oh, that's so cool. What a cool experience for you. At the end of each episode, I like to leave the audience with a conservation ask to bring into the world and go forth and do. What would you like my audience to take from your episode? So I would like the audience to know more about seagrasses and have the experience of what seagrasses and what a seagrass meadow is. So for for everybody <laughs> who's listening, and I'm going to ask just to Google seagrass and see some of the pictures that you will find. It's incredible how beautiful these systems are and how unknown they are for most of the people. I mean, everybody knows what's a coral. But when I have the experience that when I talk about seagrasses, people really don't know what, what those are. And so I'm just going to, to suggest Google it if you can and, and have availability for a laptop. And then if you are close to the coast, go to the nearest sandy area <laughs> and try to find some seagrass because I'm sure there are. And one of the fun things you can do uh, is use an app that actually is used for citizen science, but it's free to download and use and everything. And it's called Seagrass Spotter. And there you can see there's a map for places where there is seagrass. So you can maybe find your place and see if there has other, if there has been other people saying there is seagrass in your area. And if there is not, you can help find new seagrass meadows in your area. So... That's my conservation ask. More seagrass knowledge for everybody. I love it. I love citizen science. I'm constantly telling people to get out and get involved. It's so important. And I have not heard of Seagrass Spotter. So I'll I'll download the app and start okay. faffing about here and see what seeing if anybody else is using it here. And if not, I'll just start making all the recordings. <laughs> I think it started in Europe. But okay. uh, now definitely it's a global thing. Like uh, I know they have different, I mean, I've seen the map, the global map, and there are spots everywhere uh, with seagrasses. But yeah, probably there is more <laughs> concentration of data in Europe because they started there. But uh, yeah, so please help on mapping more seagrass. Very cool. I love it. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and your research, where's the best place to find you? Oh, you mean online or yes. in general? Okay. Are they welcome to come knock on the door of Bodega Marine Lab and <laughs> say hi? Well, <laughs> yes, that's definitely one thing because that's where I'm based physically. But I I want to mention that I actually work for the Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Sciences, which is in the East Coast in Maine. That's where I'm working now, but I'm working remotely for different reasons. One of them is COVID. So yeah, I, I have my office at the Bodega Marine Lab and please come and visit. We have tours for uh, general public and you can check that on the website and find a good time to come and visit the place. That's one of the places. And definitely you can check the website of the institutions where I work, or you also can check my website if you want to know a little bit more about me. And yeah, that's that's mostly it. Perfect. I'll put a link to all of that. And as Thank well you. as everything we chatted about in the show notes for today's episode. 
thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed chatting seagrasses with you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I hope you learn things. And I learned. <laughs> hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.